1: Ladies and gentlemen, another exciting episode of Beach's Audio Adventures since we're all stuck in our loungers, sitting around waiting for the possibility to go ride and play. This is Rob Beach coming to you from Grand Island, New York, right in the middle of the Niagara River. And today we've also, of course, got Mike the Mouth not coming directly from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Hi, Mikey. Hey, Robbie. How's it going? It's not going too bad. We're sitting here in the middle of the polar vortex that you sent down. (laughs) We've Uh,
2: discussed this. We've discussed this. (laughs) Right, right.
1: And it's cold and it's snowing and I can definitely see traces of Ontario in each of these individual snowflakes.
2: Well, just think of it this way. You're finally a little cooler. I finally made it to the cool mode. (laughs) So I'm sitting here. I'm kind of lost second. But I poured myself a nice beer. This is a Steiner. Or if you're not familiar with the German language, you'd be a Warsteiner, but in German, W's or V's and V's are F's. So I uh, thought I'd enjoy a nice beer. Uh, beer and dirt bikes go together. Not at the same time, of course, but afterwards. <laughs> uh, actually, I really enjoy uh, like any sport where you've kind of worked really hard. You come back and uh, you're quite thirsty. A nice, nice cold beer. Uh, I love that. But, so we're not dirt biking, but we're going to be talking about dirt bikes uh, quite a bit
1: today, aren't we? I think so. We had the opportunity a few weeks ago to have Ken Condon on and Ken is involved with riding in the zone and riding schools on the racetrack and he has a brilliant brilliant program for street riders with coaching on the street and uh, that was pretty good and in pondering a variety of different things Gretchen said one day hey what do you think about this and showed me a website and it was for the DC Dirt Camp. As I checked it out, I thought, you know, that sounds pretty interesting. She said, I'd really like to go check that out. I would like to take that course. I think that's a great idea because any training is good training. And Gretchen doesn't seem to absorb my training as well as she might if she were being trained by someone else.
2: Enter <laughs> joke here,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in spite of... um. Interesting efforts on both of our parts. It is has not gone as well as it might have had there been someone else involved.
2: Well, that, so, that's, a, that's a kind of a basic rule in life. You know, you never want to train your spouse, even when you know as much as we know, it's hard to believe.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, Gretchen is off in early June to enjoy a day or two at the DC Dirt Camp with BJ Hessler, who is the head coach and founder of the school out there. And that's who we've got on the show today. Hi, BJ.
3: Hey, guys. Great to meet you both.
2: Sort of, right?
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And Rob, I actually met you in person a while back. I doubt you remember it. But uh, we met at the Timonium bike show through John Jessen. Oh, yeah. I, I party crashed while you guys were all having dinner together.
1: Oh, right, right. Yes, yes, I yep. do remember.
3: I remember a lot of you, and I was just starstruck because I was sitting there with international traveling superheroes to me, so I just was like, oh, my gosh, I'm meeting all these cool people that ride motorcycles for a living. That's awesome.
1: That really was an interesting group of folk there. It, it really was. That was uh, quite an event. The, the group of international travelers that uh, they had pulled together for the Timonium show, was really pretty incredible. Everybody had a story to tell and everybody told them. (laughs) It was good, good fun. So yes, I do remember that.
3: And that you guys all got along and wanted to hang out with each other and didn't see each other as competitors and threats and stuff like that was really admirable. And I appreciated seeing that. I'm like, oh, okay. This is how the adults play in this arena. This is a a world I want to be in.
1: For those of you who aren't familiar, who are listening and are scratching your heads a little bit, Timonium, Maryland is the location of a motorcycle show in the springtime that traditionally had been a Harley swap meet because of Bob Hennig and his desire to get more BMW riders, specifically, obviously, but touring riders to attend the show he worked real hard on getting the promoter to get a group of travel and adventure riders together to give talks and talk about their adventures over the course of time and uh, he also invited a variety of tour companies to come and had a travel area set up at the show it was really interesting because the in contrast to all of the other rallies and shows that we've been to the tour companies were all literally shoulder to shoulder. Our booth was right next door to John Jessen. It was right next door to Edelweiss. And and each of us gave presentations on our tour packages and some of the special destinations and we could all see and hear everybody else's presentation which was quite interesting because of course we're not simply talking to potential customers but we're talking to the competition as well which made it very, very interesting. The adventure riders who were there, there were people like uh, Simon Lisa Thomas, who have been traveling around the world for 15 years on their motorcycles. I think that they've got a variety of Guinness's records for the most time on a motorcycle and quite a variety of other really, really significant adventure riders who all had great presentations and tales to tell. So it really was a very special event there.
2: So, so BJ, uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your your camp there, your writing school?
3: Yeah, so D.C. Dirt Camp was born in uh, April 2018. So this is just the beginning of my third season running the school. It started out as a motorcycle safety foundation school because there was supposedly going to be a lot of support from dealerships through the MSF channels. They had a dealer loan program that I had been kind of educated on and was told that that would be the way I'd be able to get my hands on a bunch of bikes all at once and borrow them for a season, coach and use the MSF curriculum and MSF insurance and things like that, and then give the bikes back at the end of the season. It ended up not actually being the case. I did get a little bit of support from a shop about midway through the first year with two 125 big wheels. I all my my bikes are Honda CRFs, so 125 big wheels were a great addition to my growing fleet, but they were really tiny. I realized, yeah, to make things happen the way I need them to happen, I need to just start using my paycheck by paycheck. I started acquiring more and more used Hondas. I decided to keep them all Hondas so that I could service everything. I just learned sort of one series of parts and pieces and really started educating myself about how to take care of things on the Honda CRFs because everything's exposed. But the fleet started getting big and unruly. And thank God I ran into some help last year. In the fall of 2018, the end of the first year, I I was out on a dual sport ride of my own with a big group in um, this area. We have something called the Shenandoah 500. And it's an awesome dual sport rally, a multi-day camp and ride kind of thing. And There was this really cute guy riding a 1090, and he asked if he could join me and a friend of mine on the second day, and I got all nervous, and we did the head nod of like, you go first. No, you go first, and I always like riding at the back, so I don't feel any pressure, but he was trying to be a gentleman, and so I was riding in front of him, probably rode too fast, and uh, I ended up crashing. I high-sided onto a concrete bridge, broke my ankle, bashed a helmet. The bike was okay, though. So that's the important part. I was able to get out alive, but turns out he ended up being an awesome motorcycle mechanic. He's now my boyfriend and my partner in the business. And he moved in with me about three months after the crash. So that's been a happily ever after. And DC dirt camp has really been able to take off. Thanks in no small part to that happy accident. So I tell people I willingly would have broken my own ankle to meet this guy. He's really (laughs) incredible. His name's Chris Anson. And, um, big shout out to him. This school wouldn't be what it is today without him because we now have 13 motorcycles in the fleet. We have everything from CRF 50s with a little kickstart and their teeny tiny wheels for youngsters down to age six all the way up to CRF 230s. We have either a pair or a triplet of each in between the 50s, the 110s, the 125s, the 150s and the 230s in the fleet. And that, that's really because I think it's important to put people on an appropriate sized bike to help them learn without the fear of being on a monster. I started at the wrong end of the spectrum. That Timonium show meetup and that whole story actually was part and parcel of my beginnings with the, the camp. I was on my way back from Pennsylvania where I had been an apprentice of sorts for another MSF dirt bike coach. And I took a lot of lessons from him and his business on sort of what to do and a lot of things on what not to do and just had a lot of business ideas coming out of that experience and realized, you know, I think there's a better market for this closer to a big city. And therein lies the the sweet spot of DC Dirt Camp is we're only about an hour and a half south of DC, an hour and a half north of Richmond. And uh, the urban population is really my target market because those are the folks that don't get a chance to get out and play on motorcycles. A lot of them don't have any transportation whatsoever. They borrow a friend's car to come down to dirt camp. And uh, and I'm finding a lot of the go-getters that are all career-oriented and super serious city, Washington, D.C., a lot of really serious career people, they want to come out and have an experience. I think people are sick of buying stuff. They don't want to keep accumulating things. Around here, people live in a shoebox for a million dollars a month, so Mm -hmm. they can't accumulate stuff. And it's super rare to find folks that have the capacity and the time to have a dirt bike. Dirt bikes are not just the maintenance piece, but the storage, the trailer, things like that. It's not for everybody, but it really started to change my life about five years ago when I when I first got into dirt biking, it my my world changed dramatically for the better. So I really wanted to share that experience with as many people as I could. I saw not only a business opportunity, but sort of a um, feed my soul by giving to others kind of opportunity. And uh, Dirt Camp was just born out of me buying a pair of dirt bikes when I bought my first dirt bike. I had a two rail trailer and the farm kid I bought my first bike from had some other bike in the garage that wasn't running he didn't know how it would run he didn't know what it would take so I offered him a thousand bucks for it on and rounded way down on the other bike and he couldn't say no to a lot of cash so I walked away with two bikes knowing that I needed to ride with somebody and I wanted to bring somebody else out into the woods with me so that was really the that was the impetus for the for the school was just get other people involved because I needed somebody there with me to call nine one one if I had issues in the woods.
2: So it sounds interesting. You're saying you're getting people are coming for the experience, not so much and probably the people on the other side who want to better their skills, but that's interesting. You're getting people that just want to yeah, get out of the city and I want to do something different this weekend.
3: Yeah, we really kind of cater to a few different strata of folks. We have the new riders, folks that know they want to ride motorcycles. They can't wait to get their license. A lot of times it's um, teens. And young kids that have seen people ride motorcycles and they think they want to be into motorcycles, but their parents aren't going to go buy them all the accoutrement and the bike and invest in all that for a little kid to ride before he has a chance to try it. So that's one group. The other ones are the folks that really have no intention of ever riding a bike, but they want to come out and have you know, a family experience or they're bonding with girlfriends from afar. I've actually done a couple of... Girls' weekends, where a bunch of women registered all together and they came from far and wide and reconnected with their gal pals. Had one bridal shower that came down and did a class all together. Um, But it really is something that's accessible to a lot of folks if it's done correctly. And to me, that meant providing the helmets, the goggles, the gloves, the elbow pads, the shin and knee protection. So that you didn't have to go out and spend any money on anything besides tuition to the class. I didn't want to have a bunch of prerequisites that made it an exclusive sport. I felt very fortunate that I could afford to get into the sport when I did. And I've recognized kind of the elite nature of motorcycling, at least in our country. People don't ride motorcycles because they can't afford cars here. They ride motorcycles because they also want a bike. I think the exclusivity is a shame. I wanted. I want everybody to be able to experience the joy and the excitement and that whole, like, Oh my God, Oh my God, that was so scary. Let's do it again. (laughs) Feeling (laughs) that I've gotten from uh, the thrill of riding. So it's been really fun to share that and try to provide a a one-stop shop to get the new riders involved uh, or the never ever riders. Um, And then there's also my clutch capable folks. These are folks that have already been riding street generally or they've, uh, they've gotten, they've tried to go out and get their endorsement. They've taken an on-road class they've actually had a fail- a fair number of students who have failed their on-road tests and they come to dirt camp to really figure out how to coordinate their clutch and their throttle control and get, you know, all four limbs working in conjunction before they go back and try a second time to get their license. I always tell people that it's a more gentle way to be exposed to riding a motorcycle, then dropping, you know, a Nighthawk 250 in a concrete parking lot, and generally around here, it's also at like 100 degrees. It's nice to do it out uh, right on the banks of the Potomac River and tip over a lightweight plastic bike in the grass. So that's another incentive, and the uh, the road riders really want to come and figure out how to do some sliding in corners and how to get more aggressive with their rear braking and learn how to handle low traction situations. So we really push that class as we haven't made it a hard prerequisite, but we really try to encourage folks to take our clutch capable class before they come back with their own adventure bikes. We've now branched off early last year. We started our own ADV curriculum and uh, pulled from all the different trainings that I've been a part of um, in all my years of off-roading and uh, came up with something pretty fun. It's still, it's a basic class. I don't, pretend to be any, you know, pro rider. I'm not trying to win hearts and minds to come to DC Dirt Camp because I'm a pro racer or have any kind of international, you know, credentials. I actually go from the opposite side of it that I say, I learned only, you know, less than a decade ago the off road skills and it's pretty fresh to me. I I can feel what you're feeling. I know your pain. Let me help you through it. So um we take adventure riders out. And teach them how to really handle their big bikes off road. And we invite them to come back with a big bike after they've dropped mine. I should have probably put on my business cards or on a t shirt, come drop my bike so you don't drop yours.
2: <laughs> you may not want to encourage that too much. Right,
3: right. We buy lots of handlebars and levers, but, um, you know, it's kind of the cost of doing dirt bike business. Well,
1: <laughs> no, But that's a real issue. Adventure riders with their new big expensive motorcycles who are reasonably unwilling or very unenthused to drop them any place or to fall down. And therefore they don't actually get out and try things that are going to help advance their skills. Absolutely. So you've got a fantastic service in the sense that uh, you're able to offer not as much a motorcycle that's droppable, but a motorcycle that when it is dropped is not going to crush one. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and is less likely to be dropped also because of the size and because of less power, et cetera. It's a, it's a better tool to do exactly what you're doing, which is learn how to ride in the dirt. Yeah. So Rob,
2: uh, Rob and BJ, both of you have a fair amount of experience with newer riders. And so I'm wondering how much do you think that some people underestimate how I, w- I don't want to say how difficult it is to ride a motorcycle, but somewhat in that I've had friends, who think that, well, they see me ride a bike, or whatever. Yeah. Maybe I'll go out tomorrow and get a bike license as if it's no problem. Everybody can do this. And it's, it's not the hardest thing in the world, but it's not the easiest. And so both of you have had a fair amount of experience in trying to instruct new riders. Like do, do you think there is a case that for some people for sure saying that they just underestimate the, what, the, the skill necessary.
3: I would say absolutely. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people see motorcycles from far away and they do not realize that they're controlling things with their hands and their feet and their body weight. And then another issue that I've noticed getting sort of worse, people don't drive stick shifts anymore. So the concept of a clutch, a manual clutch is very foreign to a lot of young riders they've never driven a stick so they're like why would I pull a clutch in doesn't it just go faster and faster in gear (laughs) and uh so that's an interesting one but I think the other the other piece of people getting it and then realizing they need training is when they've experienced an emergency new riders themselves
1: exactly they've scared themselves
3: (laughs) yep yep they scare themselves and they either you know really had a major crash or issue or they just you know slid through a stop sign that they weren't expecting to slide you know or things like that that's where i'd come in you know that's where i'd like to say hey we're going to teach you how to safely slide the back end so when you fishtail in dc traffic when that person doesn't run the yellow that you thought you were going to run and they're parked in front of you <laughs>
2: You know, you'll be prepared. Well, so you, you must have a similar impression from some people. Do you think there's a bit of an underestimation of what's required to be proficient at this?
1: Absolutely. Mike, you and the folks that are listening have certainly heard me harp about the differences in roads in different places in the world and how we have remarkably engineered roads and we have crats putting illogical speed limits up in some places and double yellow lines and no passing in places, et cetera, et cetera. And and therefore the vehicle operators are of, to some extent, a mindset that somebody's going to take care of me if I don't actually have the skill here. Even the motorcycle manufacturers are getting into that. And I don't mean this as a negative, it's a reality. The electronic controls and assists that are coming on motorcycles these days with ABS, with traction control, et cetera, is all intended to give a lower-skilled rider the ability to ride an impressive performance motorcycle, that they wouldn't have the ability to ride if that thing were unleashed. So from the manufacturers right on through to the road engineers, you've got a variety of people that are trying to make it, quote, easier to ride. So it's very feasible. And, And in far too many places, we don't have salesmen that are actually going to say, hey, you're not ready for this. Buy this bike. They're looking at a commission and they're looking at the fact that if this guy walks out of here with that 1200 GS or a 1090 KTM or this, that, or the other thing, his commission is quite a bit bigger than if he walks out of here with a 500 single. There are a variety of forces that are there to kind of keep one from achieving all that is possible and as BJ pointed out, achieving what's necessary when that emergency comes up or when the road conditions get more difficult. Um, We've seen a lot of people on tour who have relatively limited or extensive experience in the States coming over and saying, yeah, I can do this with no problem. And then being shocked because they actually have to have a very different level of vehicular control on the tight roads that we're riding in Europe, on the serpentine roads with being able to start on the side of a hill that's got a 12% grade on it, when there aren't 12% grades in most states in America. <laughs> you can ride hundreds of thousands of miles and never come to a 12% grade, um, depending on your, your riding area. So yeah, there 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 are a lot of people that are in that scenario. And I think that any training is good training. A zillion years ago, when I was teaching the RATS courses, the Rider Advanced Training School with BMW, I convinced our local club to offer a Motorcycle Safety Foundation course for the club. And we had a chief instructor who came out and gave that course to everybody at the club. And I'm out riding around on the range. Now, mind you, I'm an instructor at this point doing racetrack schools around the country on BMWs, but I'm still riding around the parking lot doing the drills that Ron had asked us to do. And I looked around and realized I was the only one. I was the only club member there actually on the range. All the rest of them were sitting under the shade. And I stopped and I walked over and I said, what's with this? What are you guys doing? Ron came here from Rochester to teach us here in this parking lot and you're standing around doing nothing. Well, this is bullshit they said this is not this is who, who i've been riding a hundred thousand miles i don't need to learn how to ride around cones <laughs> and i said hey i'll tell you what i'm teaching people how to do things on a regular and day-to-day basis and ron has given me a couple of very good tips he said i said i've learned things here and if i can learn things you all should learn things so get out and start writing and they did uh to their credit but the the Ability to get into situations that we're not familiar with means that the envelope gets bigger and bigger. And as the envelope gets bigger, we ride safer. And nobody is too good to learn. Nobody. I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure that I can go there and, and pick things up. It may be one tidbit out of an entire day's course, but that's something that I didn't know. And if it's something that I didn't know and it keeps me from having that broken ankle, because I don't think that I'm going to meet a cute guy. Um, I might, but i'm not going, might. i'm might. not gonna risk an ankle for
2: it okay so uh, yeah. bj i see uh, i was looking at your site and i see you're only running like the smaller bikes i've seen similar courses where they tend to use the smaller bikes is there a reason why you you're not using uh bigger bikes maybe a little bit more advanced uh...
3: uh yeah we specifically keep them small because it's easy to ride a big bike fast it's really hard to ride any bike slow. And if you aren't used to the slow speed drills, kind of like what Rob was saying, even riders with thousands of miles under their belt, they're the ones specifically who need to come and practice these kinds of skills and drills in a very slow speed controlled environment where you go around the perimeter and you do the exact same drill again and again because the conditions haven't changed. And on road, you almost never get the chance to practice the same corner 30 times. So we do the little bikes because most people can't master a slow speed skill on a big bike. Even my, I've had some pretty big students once in a while, I'll bring out my DRZ 400. If I have somebody register ahead of time who's, you know, well over six foot and pushing 300 pounds, putting mm-hmm. them on a 230 kind of isn't fair to the bike too. I don't, <laughs> don't want to do that to one of my bikes. Um, so I'll bring out my personal bike, but size appropriateness is a big deal with the dirt biking. I've learned that firsthand is that I was riding a 230, a CRF 230 for the last couple years, and I just upgraded to a KTM XCFW 250. And it's going to be the bike I have for the next five years because it's so much more power than I would ever need. And it's only a 250cc four-stroke, but the full-size frame was what I finally needed to graduate to to bring my skills to the next level. However, there's no way I would have gotten into dirt biking if the only bike I could have ridden had a 37-inch seat height. A ton of people that are just learning how to ride are off-road are still trying to put down both feet. And for folks that have never used a clutch before, I give them a pass and I say, yeah, okay, both feet is pretty important. So we put everybody on a bike they can actually straddle. By the end of the day, I try to move them all up a bike size. Or at the end of the day, if we don't have, you know, if we have the same number of people as bikes, I can't do that. But at the end of the day, I have people switch off and try a different bike because they're blown away at how much taller a bike they can handle by the end of one day in class. But if I put them on, like my average student is probably 5'4", 5'6" and I try to put them on a CRF 150 with a mid-30s range seat, they're like, I can't do this. This is going to be crazy. And they get intimidated right out of the gate. Whereas if I put them on a tiny little dirt bike and they can flat foot it, then by the end of the day, they have confidence in their own skills and abilities, and they move up to something that's more appropriately sized for them, which an appropriate size dirt bike, you can't touch both feet. Mm -hmm. unless Unless you're a giant most of us cannot flat foot our dirt bikes that would not give them enough suspension and travel to do the jobs they want to do right so um we teach people eventually and in the clutch capable classes we try to get everybody on a taller bike right out of the gate because they already have that clutch control to be able to launch appropriately and get the bike standing up and moving that's the skill that's hardest to learn if you're on a bike you can't touch on once you can already do that getting to a bigger motor and a higher displacement you know, more horsepower. That part doesn't really matter. That's not what we're in the business of. Um, We're teaching techniques with, I'd like to think it's in a low risk environment. And the bigger the bike, the bigger the risk. You know, between squishing your own leg or whiskey throttling off into the river, um, (laughs) you know, it's going to happen faster the
2: bigger the bike. Is that whiskey throttling?
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the
2: yeah, yeah, I, I've never heard it called that whiskey throw. <laughs> the, the quick,
3: I tell people the quickly exacerbating problem of momentum, where you start jerking back, and then you reach to hold on to something, and that something is what makes you jerk back, and it's a, you know,
2: yeah. parabolic I a, problem. <laughs> I had a friend uh, on his Ducati nine nine six do that right beside me on a road one time. We were having a bit of a race. Just to compare the bikes. It wasn't a race race. He wanted his, I had an R one, and he wanted to see how his nine nine six compared, and. Uh, Well, until, yeah, that happened. You could see he couldn't let off because he was hanging on with his hands and like, uh (laughs) uh-oh.
3: Yeah. yeah. We have people uh, pretty early in the class. We have everybody actually get up on the foot pegs in probably the third or fourth drill after they've just, just learned how to use a clutch. They haven't even learned how to shift yet. So they've just gone from neutral into first and they're learning how to ease out the clutch. One of our early drills thereafter is to have them stand on the foot peg and try to ride around the circle in first gear. And what that's teaching them is that throttle control and how touchy your throttle is and how quick it throws your momentum back. When you're sitting on a bike your whole life, as most road riders, you don't realize how much your head weighs Hmm. (laughs) and how much that, um, that throttle response is going to change the weight on the bike. So it's, um, we have a lot of fun techniques to humble people right away and putting them on little bikes is actually one of my favorite ways to humble big tough riders with huge egos about their skills (laughs) is to say oh okay well if it's so easy then go ahead and show me how to do it perfectly on a little
1: tiny bike yeah the other day i was watching a video and i'm sorry to say i don't remember who it was but it was a female adventure rider explaining how to mount and dismount a 1250 gs and she was really short i mean she was a very petite woman and of course she had to put it in gear with it running, and step up as the bike is rolling away. And I thought, well, you know, I can see that being necessary, but I've never actually had that problem with a 33-inch in and dirt bike experience, et cetera, so I have never had that problem. I took my little 250 Gas Gas Trials bike out, and I've spent a, a few hours mucking around with it when the weather's been halfway decent here. And one of the things that I started doing was playing with sidestepping on and off the bike the way she was doing it. Wow, it's really hard, and I'm doing it on a hundred and fifty pound motorcycle that's got a, <laughs> you know it's there's nothing to the machine that I'm using at all. and I thought that's really interesting. It is difficult, and I certainly am glad that I'm doing it here and getting my training with this rather than a twelve fifty gs yeah, yeah
3: if so it it's, starts to go, you can actually save it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I weigh more than it does <laughs> yeah so. yeah
3: there's there's a ton of skills like that though that people do not realize their body position, it needs to be spot on to execute the maneuver safely. And I think about those European switchbacks all the time. I, we have one cone drill that the MSF developed and, uh, I've taken it and run with it and added a few pieces. And some of the expertise I draw from is also from, uh, Pat Jakes, uh, the coach of ADB woman. She's been a mentor of mine and, uh, she added a piece to that that i hadn't thought of about moving my feet on the foot pegs and things like that but i introduced that drill by telling people like how many of you've gotten a little bit of that pucker factor when you're riding one way and all of a sudden you see your buddy's head going the other way right below you you're like oh my gosh there's going to be a very tight turn coming up and they get you know preparatory anxiety for it and i'm i'm saying so this is where you get to learn how to master that, that you start playing through exactly what you're going to do with your body before you get into that corner because you've built the muscle memory on a little bike in low risk situations because that's a very easy place to, to dump it, right? That's a super easy place to drop a bike is on switchbacks. For me, particularly downhill and right-hand turns. I don't know why.
2: Rob and I were just talking about this kind of the last podcast, I believe, was having a plan, so that's what kind of racing often gives you is you're entering to a turn and having a plan. What's your body position and the the, the whole whole bunch of uh, little things you do to set yourself up. And when you do it enough times, like you say, uh, it becomes easy. You're just naturally doing it. But for newer riders or if you just haven't looked at riding in that way, you're not doing those things. Right,
3: and I think that goes to your question about people underestimating how easy it is to ride. They're thinking in the moment in their little bubble on the bike or they're thinking about the obstacles in front of them but bringing all the pieces together is not something most people's brains are naturally wired to do right out of the gate on a closed range course that's where you can eliminate part of that mental processing you can eliminate some of the obstacles you can eliminate the traffic you eliminate the people on their cell phones in other cars and you have just cones and grass you can focus on your body and now when you add in the piece of all the other distractions your body has a fighting chance of following through and executing on that plan
2: bj i see your msf certified was is that something you thought was important or just something that came about
3: i did that was actually my um sort of gateway into dirt biking was through msf i had tried it and got Pretty hurt. I actually tore my thumb the first time I was on a dirt bike. (laughs) Uh, I was on a giant, like, KTM 300 out in Colorado with no experience, and I just took off and I had a great day. I just was very ill prepared, and I started kind of mousing around looking for training because I had done a bunch of on road training, but never off roading. I found a school uh, up in Pennsylvania and had reached out, and the guy, like, Followed me or found me on Instagram or something like that. I don't remember how he ended up reaching back, saying, "Actually, do you want to come up an apprentice under me? I'm an MSF coach and I'm like, MSF does on offer it. Wait, what? So it was just I got swept up into coaching right away, um, and then the MSF component carried through because I would say the hardest part about starting any kind of motorcycle business, and Rob, I'm sure you can attest to this would be the insurance. Insurance is prohibitively expensive, especially when you're providing the vehicle. And I needed to protect myself, the landowner, all that kind of stuff, because I rent the land currently. So MSF makes a very tidy little package of: here's your curriculum, here's your certification, here's your, you know, indemnity forms or whatever they call them, the hold harmless agreements. And they give it a lot of uh, handholding to try to help get set up. Their original purpose, I think, was to try to get more people introduced to motorcycling and keep growing the sport. So that's where they had partnered with a lot of, they were getting dealerships to buy in with uh, Honda, Kawasaki, and Suzuki, at least. Originally, I think were the ones that had the dealer loan program. If you were an MSF coach teaching that specific curriculum, you could get the bikes. So it was this whole big package that I became aware of from, uh, it's called Explore International got to give credit where it's due. A guy named Alan up there helped pick me out and helped me get uh, into the program. That was the package I thought I would buy into. And since then, it's been sort of MSF plus, plus, plus with the more training I've had and the more um, exposure to different kinds of coaching and different ways that I want to deviate a little in my curriculum and with my, my offerings. We sort of took the MSF as a basic and moved up from there I think in general it helps in terms of promoting that we have some kind of credibility because I don't have a long race history track record. I'm not trying to say I'm this famous adventure rider who's you know done this that and the other. So to have any kind of personal credibility, I felt like I needed some certification. Um, I brought on Chris after drawer Crash, and he was working on bikes. He started assisting me, and this past year we actually got him and one more coach certified officially. Um, it's a, it's about a week long training, flew them out to California and worked with the Honda, Honda rider training school out there. I decided it was a good time to take a road trip and drive my new van out there and stop <laughs> in all the warm places on the way and ride dirt bikes. So that was a great, excuse to go supervise my supervise my ducklings in their training but the certification i think grants us a little bit of legitimacy and as i grow the business i want all of the coaches to have the same baseline education the rider teacher training is another one of those standards that you know you can kind of set the bar there and as a bare minimum you need to perform this this and this and execute these drills make sure your body posture is correct and we're all doing the same thing and on the same sheet of music so the MSF provides that baseline but I also do uh, AMA sponsored events so our adventure bike classes though they use some components of the MSF curriculum they also borrow from I've had the privilege of going to the BMW Academy and done some dart training the Build Dragoo stuff, um, with Michelle Marie Wilson, and a lot of time spent training with Pat Jakes, uh, that it's been sort of an amalgam of my own writing experience and all the different trainings to create our ADV curriculum. So given that it's not an MSF program, I can't ensure the events through MSF that I reached out to AMA and Discovered what it would take and there's another level level of legitimacy to becoming a um, chartered member of the AMA. I had to have some people in the community vouch for DC Dirt Camp. So it's a chicken or an egg. How do you become a legitimate company (laughs) if people don't know you're a legitimate company? But some folks did vouch for me and um, I ended up getting to be a chartered organization. At the time, I was a chartered organization of one. I was all officers and uh, all pieces of that puzzle. But but that's where our adventure bike courses come in with really trying to promote the AMA and all that they do for our sport and supporting us with legislation. And around this area, it's very obvious, too, that there's a need for people to actually defending rights of riders for off-road stuff. Off-highway vehicle riding areas are becoming... Pretty hard to find. I rent a tiny little parcel of land. It only takes about two and a half acres to run my whole camp. But what we ideally would love to have would be, you know, tons of acreage and trails and be able to offer actual campsites and have a whole facility dedicated to your weekend away. The number one, it would make set up and tear down of camp way easier for me and my staff it would make it more viable to do more events and bigger events but nobody wants dirt bikes in their backyard
1: (laughs) (laughs) what we've uh, got an interesting situation here in western new york one of the ski slopes has actually opened up in the summertime to allow off-road riders Hmm. and they've got a variety of different trails ranging from stuff that a kid on a 50 can handle with no problem at all and very little experience up to some real serious double-A enduro stuff. That's and awesome. It is. What mountain? Uh, Holiday Valley. Oh, Holiday wow. Valley okay. That's York. where
3: my mother grew up skiing. That's mm-hmm. great.
1: Yeah, exactly. From Rochester, she would. Yep. Yeah. So now that's a place that you can go and play with your motorcycle in the summertime.
3: That's awesome. Big vision. I would like to see a Mid-Atlantic Motorsports Park. I'm just going to put that out to the universe, because (laughs) I would really like to live and work at a motorsports park, have my little Mm -hmm. cabin with my humongous bunch of containers, shipping containers full of bikes, and have family-friendly atmosphere where people have a fair right to ride, and that they learn to be respectful of the environment, they learn proper technique for riding, they learn about safety. I just think that Dirt biking has so much to offer and it's gotten such a bad rap and it doesn't have to be that way. I wish we could get a better exposure to the general public. And I think that's a piece that dirt camp can make a little bit of inroads with a lot of, I mean, white collar people that have never seen dirt biking, you know, have have an idea that it's motocross where your kid's going to go flying 80 feet in the air and die on his head, (laughs) or it's some redneck sport where people just rip around in, their granddad's backyard, and it—it it really is neither. It can be a very beautiful thing, and it's a—a a huge opportunity for training and discipline and fitness and health and vitality. Um, you know, families can do that together until they're 100 years old. Right? We have beautiful. so many, so many guys in our community that I'm blown away at how, frankly, how, what kind of badass riders they are, and they're in their 80s, and there's no way I can catch them on a trail.
2: Um, Another part of it, too, is like you were saying about bringing in people who aren't necessarily more cyclists, they're coming for an adventure. And what's great about that is that's what really raises our visibility people start looking for bikes because they are aware of them. Just like if you ever notice, if you're thinking about buying a vehicle, whatever it would be, uh, you think, gee, I, I think I might like one of those. All of a sudden you start seeing them everywhere, right? <laughs> uh, just being aware of them. So when you get that white collar guy, not to pick on them, but the person who isn't your typical clientele, maybe he'll never ride a dirt bike, but he's coming for a weekend of have fun. He comes has a great time i have no doubt he will see more cycles more often than yeah. had he not taken that course
3: yeah and we're hearing a lot about um i actually never heard about it until i started teaching and i guess it's probably just exposure now to more folks with kids is that they're teaching their kids of we did like punch buggy in the car you know punch your brother when you uh, see a blue punch bug they're telling their kids on road trips to count the motorcycles mm-hmm. to raise the awareness that from toddler age, count the motorcycles, you know, how many, how many did you see before the next gas stop, stuff like that. And I get a lot, a lot of little kids inquiring or their parents inquiring on their behalf, obviously, but they are just so stoked to be a superhero on a motorcycle. Like they think everybody knows how to ride motorcycles and you got to just get on and rip it. And I think that kind of enthusiasm, if it's not capitalized on right then at that age, they sort of fall off and get sucked into different stuff i mean i don't want to just blame video games but computer lives you well, know then that
2: begs the question now we're hearing all the time and again rob yeah you, we you'll have a lot of input on this also is that Is there an appetite out there for these sports we keep hearing about? Of course, not just video games, not to pick on those. I like playing video games. But uh, a lot of sports are in the decline, have been for years. Is there an appetite out there still for this?
1: Yeah, I I definitely think that there is. a, A chicken and egg question. Yes, there's an appetite for it. But if you don't have the possibility to go someplace with your youngster and introduce them to this, It's never going to happen. It's a, yeah, I'd love to, but it isn't going to happen, particularly for people that are in urban areas. So there absolutely is a desire to come up with something that's different and something that's going to capture the kid. And particularly as a parent of youngsters, you're looking at the future and thinking, I've got to give this kid something that he sticks with and something that grabs his passion or her passion and says... Keep doing this. Keep doing this. Get better at this because that's the stuff that keeps kids from
2: going astray. Well, in my vast knowledge of child rearing, um,
1: <laughs> been, I have no children. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, and the world's a better place, Mike. Now, with <laughs> Bonnie, <laughs> Bonnie, from a social standpoint, would would bring in insulted. Bonnie's insulted. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> Any, <me>. anywho. <laughs>
2: from what i gather from people who know something is that when you instill confidence in kids doing things like that put them on that dirt bike and show them how they can climb over this rock or go down this trail or do whatever show them how well they can play hockey you know a really cool sport literally uh (laughs) whatever it be right you instill confidence in them through sports that they're more apt to not do the other things because they have confidence in their own abilities and they don't need to hang out with the the loser at the school or whatever. I I don't need to hang out with you to feel good about myself. I I know I'm I'm good.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. We talk about that all the time. My partner and I were actually saying that on our way back this past weekend we met up with with his kid who's now nineteen and he started him out on a dirt bike when he was three. And it's something that they can still do together. And you just say like what other nineteen year old wants to come see his dad for the weekend and actually go do something, you know? I mean, yes, you can grow up taking your kid to baseball and you're there every Saturday cheering for him, but once he graduates high school, if he's not a college player, you're probably not gonna go throw the ball around with your kid after he leaves high school.
2: And you know, the other part about that is there's a lot of sports are exactly what you just said. I'm gonna bring my my son or my daughter to the baseball field, to the hockey rink, to the wherever, and and watch them play. There's a few other sports, skiing's one of them. Where let's take the whole family. We we will all go skiing. We're not all going to sit here and one watch the one person do something. And dirt biking's another one. Let's all go out and we will all participate. We can all have fun and fall down and get muddy and have a good time.
3: Yep, yep. That's exactly it. And I think that uh, you know, they always say families that play together stay together, and I think that's. Very true. I know I've been thanked at least twice directly for saving relationships because we got the other half up on her bike on her own doing her own thing because it was starting to become the, where are you every weekend? I want to hang out. You're off riding. And the answer is, okay, well, you better learn to ride. Like, and I get that from my perspective. I would never, I wouldn't even enter into a relationship that person didn't want to ride because that's what I'm gonna be doing every weekend. So it's it's really cool to see families get into it. I've actually roped in a couple moms who came to class and they're like, oh no, 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 I'm just here to drop Cindy off and I'm just hanging out. I'm just taking pictures. And I was like, you look like you're about a size eight and a half shoe. I happen <laughs> to have some extra boots. You sure you don't want to ride? I mean I got an extra bike. I'll give you a half price deal because that bike's just sitting there. Why don't you jump on? And she's like, seriously I could learn wait, what? And it just, it's so cool to see mother and daughter, mother and son, whatever, father and daughter, to see that intergenerational bond over learning how to use the clutch and making mistakes together and the competitiveness within families and the support within families is so heartwarming for me to be able to um, to see that kind of dynamic in my classes is a really, really neat payoff that I didn't anticipate. I actually don't like kids. I'm afraid of children. I think they're just expensive and wet and loud and they freak me out. But I've these first two years, I've only worked with ages 12 and up. Um, and this year will be our first year opening up classes to little, little kids. So I hired another coach to help with that. <laughs> well, um,
2: well done. Well done. <laughs>
3: but the 12 and ups have really surprised me with how much how much they're real humans already and they're really absorbing things and that you can see their, their self-confidence. Like you said, that confidence of getting out on the ice young and mastering the skill, that confidence piece is so fun to help instill in young people. I happened to start riding when I was very young and there were no women, no women that I could look up to and ride with. Um, I thought riding was a solo sport from age 16 until age 35. And then I started riding dirt and all of a sudden I had a crew and almost all the people in that crew were male.
2: Now, why do you think that is? Because it's still that way, right? Um, uh, it's, it's There's more female riders, but really it's still predominantly a uh, male sport.
3: Yeah, it is. I think um, a lot of it, at least with dirt biking, I think it's uh it is a pretty rough and tumble sport. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. So you have to actually be athletic and get dirty and, I bite my nails. I don't, I don't have pretty fingernails. You know, mm. it's not a, um, it's not a glamorous thing. But oh, but
2: that's, but that's at the age you're now, but for the 12 year old, 12 right. year old, 12 year old boy. Young
3: girls, I think a lot of it, I still have actually a lot of parents that I try as diplomatically as I can to confront via email when they're like, are you doing a girls only class? Or how many girls have registered? My kid is anxious about being the only girl in class. I say, actually, I don't, I don't collect gender data in my registrations because it doesn't matter in this sport. And that mindset of parents is still there. Oh, my little girl is going to get on a dirt bike is a much bigger deal to a lot of adults is my perception. I also don't have kids, so I can't speak <laughs> to this too, too truthfully. But I think a lot of people still think my daughter is fragile and my son is tough. You know, I think we still have a long way to go in terms of making that um, a thing of the past that I think women can be just as tough when they're taught properly. I think a lot of, a lot of guys have to hop on and go and I'll figure it out. And a lot of women want to know what the steps are. Then they want to practice step one. Then they want to learn step two, one and two and practice step one and two. they may have a different learning curve than boys. I
1: think you've really hit it on the head there. They definitely have a different learning curve and in too many places in the country there isn't the opportunity to start things on a level that is sensible. I mean your school is fairly unique.
3: You can google MSF dirt bike school and you can search by zip code I believe for other dirt bike trainers like me. I don't know how many people have what kinds of bikes and what kind of gear That was a big differentiator that I saw right off the bat was a missing piece in my sort of apprenticeship was that it was just a bike. And I thought, well, if I'm a beginner who's never used a clutch before, why would I own a helmet? I don't want to go buy a hundred dollar helmet if I'm not going to get it, if I don't like dirt biking. What if I'm terrible at this? Now I have a cheap helmet if I do love it, or I have a helmet that was too expensive to wear once. Yep. So I really thought it was important to invest heavy up front to get everybody equipped and I have this neat little shed where everything's sized out and now in this era of COVID that's turning into my biggest pain in the ass is (laughs) trying to figure out how to absolutely sanitize those in between. I'm encouraging road riders to bring their own street helmets. You won't look as cool in your pictures that I capture during class because you don't have that cool dirt bike helmet. But Wearing your own road helmet is totally fine on a dirt bike. But I also think it's, it's becoming a public service. I'm getting tons of emails a day saying, when are you opening? When are you opening? I think people are ready to just throw their kids into camp. They're, everybody wants to get out and play. Yep. And motorcycles inherently are distant.
1: The other advantage that you've got is you've got people that are a little more practical when it comes to evaluating risk as motorcycle riders. They look at the world a little differently. So since a lot of the people that are listening to this are going to be coming from all over the place, tell me about how you can accommodate someone that's coming in from out of town at school. You have a hotel nearby or a motel nearby to accommodate. How does that work? So I sleep in my van and I camp all weekend or
3: during the super hot months. Thankfully, we are in a very urban area, so there's tons of Airbnbs. Those are fantastic options in the closest towns are Fredericksburg or King George proper. King George is the small town where I'm, where we teach. And we're right near Dahlgren, which is a huge naval base. So there are a lot of commuters with really nice homes and finished basements and all the cool Airbnb stuff around there. There's also little farms you can rent and we actually rented an RV all last summer from a guy who parks it in between his house and his garage. <laughs> so we were like sleeping in his driveway just to get a little bit of air conditioning. Cause July and August, yeah. it's pretty rough down here. Um, yeah. It's hot. I'm working on some deals with hotels down at colonial beach. Um, it's about 30 minutes away to get some room, special room rates at boutique hotels. There's a few really cute, you know, retro looking 60s hotels. Um, But it's a very rural community. So you do have to drive and plan ahead and pack your lunch. We have everybody just bring a cooler and uh, we provide just shade and porta potties. And it's pretty rudimentary at this point. Like I said earlier, we want to find land. We want to have our own actual camp. I would love to buy an old campground and turn it into a dirt bike school or work with the current proprietors and see if we'd be able to supplement their revenue by having an actual campground because we do um, some great debriefs at the end of class. And a lot of times we actually do s'mores. I'm big on s'mores. I'm a very food motivated person. So (laughs) like you were saying, uh, Mike, at the beginning, you know, finishing a long, hard day and a good workout with beer. My thing is to finish it with some chocolate and marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs)
2: How about a a beer, chocolate beer? I don't
3: know. I've seen chocolate beer. I've heard of them. I've heard of them. (laughs) We've had a couple classes where it was too hot for a fire, but we ended up all melting the chocolate and resting a marshmallow on our panniers (laughs) at the end of an ADB class. And we actually melted. The marshmallows got soft, but the chocolate completely melted. It wasn't exactly a great experiment. We're right on the waterfront in the Potomac. And as long as there hasn't been massive rain and there's not terrible washout, it's safe enough. To swim in the Potomac.
2: Like, does that actually say that on the uh, waiver? It's safe it's enough?
3: It's safe enough. I, I, tell, I ask people if they have any like you know fresh cat scratches or new tattoos or anything, and then I don't recommend going in. <laughs> it's definitely a trek. You got to pack for it and at least have a cooler. And of course, in this time of COVID, we can't share anything. We used to have a huge... Ice water refill thing, so we'd tell everybody be sustainable, bring a refillable bottle. Now I can't even you know I don't want the mouth of anybody's bottle need near a refilling station. so we're not even doing that right now. there's just no sharing. It's rustic for sure, but it's a heck of a lot of fun, and I think taking away all the accoutrement helps people recognize how little you need to get out and play and have fun. It's so awesome to be able to say you need nothing besides tuition and I recommend hiking boots and like jogging pants, and a long sleeve shirt. The rest of it, we got you covered. The other thing that I really try to tell people and encourage them is that yes, within one day, I will have you from never ever sitting on a motorcycle to standing on the foot pegs and turning, shifting gears and actually riding. it. And people don't believe me, but I think with the right step-by-step instruction and that kind of approach. I won't say anybody, but i say almost anybody can learn to ride a motorcycle. It's very rewarding. I absolutely love it. And it's given me more of a purpose.
2: Cool. Lightning round. Favorite motorcycle magazine? ADV Moto. Favorite motorcycle movie? Any given Sunday. Oh, an oldie. Vintage. Nice. Uh, Music or wind? Road, music. Dirt, definitely wind. Tinted shield or sunglasses? Goggles. Mountains or ocean? Mountains. 100%. Ninjas or pirates? Ninjas. Supercross or motocross? Trials. <laughs> <laughs> Indoor or outdoor? Outdoor. Awry or shoey? Shooey. Pizza or burger? Pizza. Mud or sand? Actually sand. Four stroke or two stroke? Four stroke, all the way. Murder hornets or vampire ticks? Murder hornets. Break or sprain? Break. Too hot or too cold? Too cold. Deep water crossing or deep mud? oh oh, oh, that's tough deep mud last question favorite motorcycle podcast
3: uh motorcycles and misfits
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay okay last question favorite motorcycle podcast
3: beaches motorcycle adventures
2: right on there you go Thank hey, you. BJ. It's been great talking to you. It sounds like you, uh, you have a really, uh, neat camp going on there. Um, yeah, thank
3: you guys you know. so much for this opportunity. This has really been awesome.
2: Oh, yeah, that was right on. Talking to me, BJ. Robbie, uh, so what's, what do we have in store for our next podcast? What are you thinking?
1: I'm thinking that we're off to some exciting places next year in 2021, mm-hmm. starting with New Zealand. And uh, so I think we ought to reach south of the equator and get Mr. Al Walker from Wanaka, New Zealand to talk to us a little bit about what's coming up on the Maori meander in February of 2021.
2: Ah, that'd be pretty, pretty great to talk to Al again. Haven't talked to him for a while. Might even be able to pry a few stories out of him from his many years on the road. Uh, maybe even the elevator story. <laughs>
1: Ah, ah, yes, indeed. We ought to come up with the elevator story. That is a good one. Okay, so if we're having Al on here, uh, who's going to (music) translate?